Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses Haiti. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Loving Father, I thank you for Jillian, and I thank you for the word that you have put in her heart this morning, and I just thank you that that word will come out of her mouth and into our ears and hearts and perform what you have um, planned for it to do, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Oh, I'm Jillian, and um, yeah, I'm just really, really glad to be here with you guys this morning. So I have titled this teaching, um, forgive my poetry, but anyways, The Moment in the Melody, Crossing the Jordan. And um, I heard a teaching a few years ago uh, through the Bible Project that used this idea of the melody as a way of reading scripture. And so he was using the idea of blue note jazz. And in that era of jazz, a song would start with a 30-second melody, and it would be one instrument that introduced the melody. And then the entire rest of the song, that was sometimes 10 to 20 minutes, would be a repetition of that same melody over and over again, but never exactly the way it was played the first time. There would be a quartet, and then there would be just piano, and then there would be one at double time, and then it would be slowed down. So the melody that you got in that first 30 seconds was repeated over and over, 
differently to create a whole song. And that's actually how the Bible functions as well. It starts with a basic melody that's repeated over and over, but never exactly the same way. And the melody goes something like this. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. The Bible starts with creation. God creating the heavens and earth and everything in them, blessing one element in particular and making humanity as his image bearers. Creation. And then comes the fall, the enslavement to sin and the spreading of that sin and injustice that is the result of enslavement until the blood cries out so loudly that God steps into the story and washes it clean of evil, liberation. But among the evil of the world, God found one who was righteous, a man named Noah, and God set him apart and blessed him and started again with Noah and his family, renewal. That's the melody, and it keeps repeating. Noah's family grows, creation, but so too does the enslavement to sin that spreads among them. Babylon is the city that grows and feeds on the hurt and injustice and pride, until there's that story of God scrambling their languages and scattering the nations, liberation. Among them, he finds one righteous man, Abraham, and begins a renewal through his family, creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. That's the melody. And then it keeps going through Leah and Joseph and Moses and Joshua, who we're going to come back to, through Ruth and Samuel and David and on and on until the climactic moment, the crescendo of the song in Jesus, where God himself enters into creation, into the world enslaved by sin in a cycle they cannot get out of. And he takes that sin into his own body so that it can die with him in order to bring liberation once and for all. Amen. And that's a good story. What makes it an amazing story is it doesn't even end there because Jesus' renewal involves the giving of his very spirit. So that for each and every person who says yes to him, they have that melody of renewal played through their life. Creation enslavement, liberation, renewal. And I just wanted to take some time to outline that this morning, uh, because as Christians, the Bible should be the framework that we use to make sense of the world. And when we are going through situations in our lives, be they really hard times or joyful and exciting times, this is where we turn to when we need help making sense of things. However, the Bible is often frustratingly short on answers like why or what to do in particular situations. What it does offer is plenty of how, how God works, how he brings about renewal. And I think it's really helpful for us to know first that we are living in a biblical story and to know what part of the cycle we are currently in, both individually and, part of, and as a whole. So when Tom asked me if I would share something through the summer, um, and it was to be a teaching not part of the series, which gives a lot of healthy constraint <laughs> to things, uh, I spent a lot of time praying and listening as to what I felt like God might have for us to hear at this particular moment. And I presented a few ideas to Tom, and he made some suggestions, and then I just ended up doing all the ideas at once. Um, <laughs> because I'm coming to realize 
that we're living in a particular moment of that biblical cycle, and I truly believe that God is doing a work here among us. Um, he's moving us along in the melody. And um, there are things that he's been working in through me as an individual that I've come to see may be very helpful for us as a community. So what I want to do today is to name what I see is the part of the story we are living in and to give us a few tools to help us continue the work, to work with God and what he's doing in and through us. So all that being said, I am sharing this in full humility. I'm going to speak a little bit more prophetically than I am used to and yeah. comfortable with. Come on. Um, but I don't want you to just accept that as truth because I am up yeah. here with a microphone. Weigh this, pray about it, let's talk about it, and let's learn yeah. from it together, okay? So the story I want to unpack for us today is the story of Joshua from the Israelites crossing the Jordan River um, into the land of their inheritance, the promised land. And I'm going to rewind their story just a little bit here in a moment to show where in that biblical cycle this, that story falls, because there seems to be a lot of similarity between Joshua 1 and 3 and the story we are collectively living in right now. Um, Joshua is going to provide the framework for us to explore, and I have three words for us. Increase your expectation, I'll go first, and it is finished. All right, so I'm just going to pray for a second. Lord, Thank you. Thank you that you are here, that you are moving, that you have written the most gorgeous story. Thank you that we are a part of it. And I just ask that you just speak today, speak in these words that I've brought and just if there's something truthful in them, let it land and let it spur us onward. Amen. So the teaching text that uh, Ange read for us is from Joshua 1, but I just want to rewind a little bit to the beginning of Exodus to place the story into the larger story. So the Israelites are living in Egypt, where they prosper and grow to be a very large nation. That's the creation portion of this melody. However, a new pharaoh takes over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph and his family. Um, and out of fear, the Israelites begin to persecute and abuse God's family. They enslave them, they murder their children, and they do everything they can to stop God's people from flourishing. Very obvious enslavement. Um, the cry of the unjust and suffering of his people come, compels God to act mightily in order to rescue them. God calls one man, Moses, and he, to lead his people out of Egypt. And through a series of 10 plagues, Pharaoh is finally persuaded to let them go the Israelites leave Egypt and make it as far as the Red Sea before Pharaoh comes after them. And then through Moses, God's chosen leader, God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites cross through on dry land to safety and to freedom. It's an incredible story of liberation. One told and retold and turned into songs and turned into a festival so that they could celebrate it and taste it. Um, and yet... When you read the account, it takes the Israelites mere hours to start doubting God's provision for them. They walked through dry land in the middle of a sea and then immediately doubt whether he can feed them. Um, fast forward a few chapters 
and God leads them to the edge of the promised land, their inheritance as God's chosen people. And renewal is waiting for them, but they're too afraid to enter the land. So they wander in the desert for 40 years. The Israelites are caught between liberation and renewal. They're a wilderness generation. And so are we. We live in the tension between the ultimate liberation Jesus has done for us and the renewal of all things he promised is coming. This is the wilderness. This is the space between liberation and renewal. However, here's where our story and Joshua's differ. differ. The Israelites are living in the wilderness waiting for inheritance, and we having the insane privilege of living after the crescendo that is Jesus have already been given our inheritance. I kind of picture it this way. The gospel stories are of Jesus are like the entire symphony all playing the melody at the same time. And what comes after is every single instrument breaking off and playing their own individual melody uh, in their own way. And that represents each life in Christ as a separate melody that makes up a whole. And that's, that's kind of like where we are in that melody. In Ephesians 1, Paul explains our inheritance as being adopted into sonship and being given every spiritual blessing in Christ. It also outlines how we are God's inheritance through the Holy Spirit. It's mind-boggling. Ephesians is my favorite letter in the Bible, but it is very dense, and we don't have time to get into all that today, so I'm just going to summarize Ephesians 1 this way. Through adoption to sonship, you, you are holy and blameless. You have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You have all wisdom and understanding of God's will. You have incomparably great power, and all of this and more through the promised Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance. So our inheritance is full life filled with the Spirit, a life where every step we take produces the fruits of the Spirit. That would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's a life shaped by the gifts of the Spirit that include wisdom and knowledge and faith and healing and tongues and prophecy and miraculous powers. A life that creates praise for God's glory, guys. It's the kind of life that someone sees and knows it can only be from God. If that is your current experience of walking with Jesus, then I would just commend you and say, keep going. And if it is not your current experience, I would invite you to consider that you may be in a wilderness, but you're in very good company. And I encourage you that this moment seems to be one where God is inviting us afresh into the land of inheritance. Biblically, there's a reason for wilderness. Tom did a really good teaching on this a few years back. I would highly recommend listening to it again. It's titled, Why the Wilderness? But here's my one sentence summary of that. When we come to the end of ourselves, we make room for God to do his work. And it seems like we might be starting to reach that end goal of a wilderness generation. 
there is no doubt that the last few years and even the last few months have been a really rough go for this community. And I know we kind of keep talking about that, but I think it's because it's true. Um, but there's a sense that God is really doing something. And as a quick aside, if that is not limited to this little gathering, God is doing things in his global church. And it's, it's very exciting. But here at least, I think it can be linked to this idea of coming to the end of ourselves. And that's not a bad place to be, guys. So this is where the first of the three prophetic words I have comes in. Increase your expectation coming to the banks of the Jordan. In Joshua's story, the Israelites are back at the edge of the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years. 40 years was a literal lifetime at that point in history. So we can at least speculate that most of the people who came to the banks of the Jordan had heard stories of the incredible liberation of their people, but had not actually experienced it themselves. They had faith that God could do miraculous things and that he had moved powerfully to liberate, but their actual experience was of wandering and waiting. And that resonates with me. I know the feeling of a safe and comfortable, if kind of dry and dusty relationship with Jesus. One where I accept I'm loved and I understand the basics of forgiveness, um, but I don't have much expectation from him, nor do I think he expects much from me. But then I did start a real relationship with him, and I am continually amazed that he is interested in and working through me. And I have felt that invitation for the past while to increase my expectation of what he wants to do. And I don't think that's just an invitation for me. I think it's for all of us. In Joshua, the Israelites have come to an edge of another body of water. One, God says he will part for them so they can walk through. Their work is to trust that what they have experienced of God so far is not all they will experience of God. To increase our expectation, that's our work. That's how we move from the wilderness to the Jordan. And how, you ask? Well, God gives Joshua instructions. He says, keep this book of the law always on your lips and meditate, it, meditate on it day and night. So the law God is referring to are the books of Moses in the Bible, the first books of the Old Testament. God instructs the Israelites to get the story God has been waiting God has been writing into their imaginations so that they can hear the melody he's been crafting and find their place in it. But it's not just to read the stories, it's to keep them on their lips. It's to talk about them. It's to increase the expectation in each other by talking about what God has done. And this is how we can increase our expectation too. And the good news is that we're already doing this, guys. We read scripture together. We talk about God and our experiences. We share pictures and words. If we look at the sermon series we've been doing for the past while, our leadership team has been priming us for this. We did practicing the presence of God, hearing God. We did a whole series on what the promises of God mean for us. And then we did another one on reading through the Psalms when we can't quite trust those promises. Um, Lee and Tion put on that great 
uh, teach the prophetic. yeah the prophetic series that we did, yeah. and then we took time to actually pray individually for each other, and we'll continue that in the fall where we could practice these things that we're doing. This is a community built on the idea of practicing the way of Jesus in our entire lives. It's built on disciples doing life together. That would count as meditating day and night, guys. We can and do increase the expectation in each other by the way we talk and pray for each other. We just need to keep going in that. Tell your stories, tell your testimonies, your past experiences with God moving in your life. Hearing the stories helps us increase the expectation of more. Because he does have more. What we've been doing is good, but there's more. Here's the thing, though. When the Israelites and Joshua come to the banks of the river, they have humbled themselves, they've reached the ends of themselves, and they're ready to trust God's goodness and God's will for their lives. They have increased their expectation and believe that God is going to part the waters and do the miracle again. But they also have come to the banks of the river, letting God do the miracle as he sees fit, not the way they expect it to be done. God's done this miracle before, but it's going to look different this time. Okay, second word, I'll go first, stepping in together which I realize is a bit contradictory, but stick with me. (laughs) So let's rewind a little bit again to Moses and the Red Sea. In the Exodus story, the Israelites are in a panic. They are trapped between Pharaoh and the water with no visible way out. And this is Moses' instructions to them. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then God instructs Moses to lift his staff, and because of one leader's faith, the entirety of the Israelite family gets to cross to safety. Joshua is quite different. This is Joshua 3. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a great heap. So a few weeks ago, I was praying for our community and just asking God what he might be up to here and how I could participate. And I heard him say so clearly, I'll go first. And... I just knew in that moment he meant at least two things. He probably means a lot more, but takes a long time to catch up with him sometimes. Um, First, that he had gone first. That like the psalmist says, he is my shepherd. He leads and he guides and is with me. And that through his life and death and resurrection in Jesus, there is nothing in the human experience that I come up against that he has not already done. He goes first. But also, God was inviting me personally to go first, to step out in faith into something that I'm not sure of the outcome. I'll go first is where he, I'll go first in where he's leading my family and this community and probably other places that we haven't got to yet. Um, It's an invitation to know that if I step out with him, he's already there. 
It's a word I shared with the leadership team here, and increasingly as I prepped for this message, I think it's a word for all of us, guys. I'll go first is actually about us stepping in together. Not knowing exactly what we're stepping into. There's a definition of spiritual leadership that I really like. It is the willingness to risk foolishness in public. It's a risk you take, though, in faith that God has not only gone first, but that he will meet you when you take a step out for him. In Joshua's story, the Ark of the Lord goes into the Georgian. That's the Ark that housed the presence of God. God goes first, and then the 12 leaders step in together. God parted the Red Sea using one leader, Moses. The Israelites come into inheritance together as a community. And we are a small community. It's evidence, right? And it has its challenges being a small community, but I'm far more interested and excited about the possibilities of a small community than the challenges. Being so small means that we have the opportunity to really know each other, and that means we get to really challenge each other and actually support each other and pray specifically for each other and rejoice with each other and point out where we see God working in each other. It also has opportunities for leadership. Because if I say to you, pray for your leaders in this church, pray for the elders and their wives and their children, pray for the worship leaders, pray for the people who do liturgy and the team leaders and the people who come up and share in our gatherings and the ladies who run the table and the community group leaders, that is basically everyone in this room, guys. So being a small group that is hungry for God is a blessing and an opportunity. I was talking with Jess and she had this really helpful illustration of what it's like to step out in the spirit. And she said it was like being led out on a limb. And then only when you were out there could you see that, oh, that's the actual limb I'm supposed to be out on. And then you could climb up on that. And then you would see, oh, I'm actually supposed to be out on that limb. And then you would climb up on that. And that can sound a bit frightening, but that's when you need to be reminded of who is leading you, that he is a good shepherd and he takes care of his flock. Another detail of Joshua's story that I love is that the priests and the elders who step first into the water stay put until the entire community is crossed. Only then do they come out of the water. There is something in that that reveals the heart of God. He is just as patient with the last as he is the first He is consistently has a heart for the one that's missing or on the margins. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel like they're more suited to one group or the other. What I'm saying is that the heart of God is patience and inclusive. And so that's how we as a community should aim to reflect him. So take that as encouragement for any of you who are not quite sure what all my talk about inheritance and the Holy Spirit might actually look like or for anyone who's just not quite feeling the hype of (laughs) what I'm obviously feeling about this, um, the invitation here is not exclusive to only those who would consider themselves leaders, and it's not a shove into the deep end of things, but it is an invitation to step in with us. God has more for us, more than we can possibly imagine, but to inherit it, we need to increase our expectation And then we need to risk the foolishness of being willing to go first. All right, part three. 
three prophetic words in one teaching. How are we doing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. I got <laughs> All right. I'm not cold. It is finished. Waiting on the miracle. God gives instructions for Joshua for coming into the land of inheritance. Instructions on how to get ready. Instructions on how to choose the elders. Instructions on who, to, who is to cross when. But there's one instruction that he repeats multiple times. Be strong and courageous. Why? Why, when God is doing all the work, when he is going first and it's his plan that we're following, would strength and courage be the most prominent of instructions? And why didn't he give, give the same instructions to Moses when they crossed the Red Sea? Because the Red Sea parted instantly and it parted straight down the middle. The effects of the miracle were immediate. The Jordan stops flowing immediately, but the effects may have taken a while. This is Joshua 3, 14 to 16. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. How long might it take for the waters to flow out? How long after the immediate miracle did the priests, risking foolishness, see the effects of the miracle God has done? Israel's deliverance from Egypt was immediate and clear to see. One moment they were enslaved and oppressed, the next they were free. But coming into their inheritance, into a life that actually looks like the kind of free life God intended for his people. That took 40 years of wandering while they came to trust God, then a step of faith into the river, and then waiting. Be strong and courageous, God told them. This one you're going to need endurance for. The Gospels, which pick up the biblical story many generations later, start with a man named John the Baptist, a man who is out in the wilderness calling people to get ready as he baptizes them in the Jordan River. He is getting Israel ready for yet another miracle, a miracle that will ensure their freedom once and for all and opens up the path to their inheritance. Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized it was here that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit so he could complete the work he came to do. It was from the banks of the Jordan that he was brought by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, symbolic of the 40 years of wandering of the Israelites, where he was tempted by and overcame sin. He went forth from there living a perfect and beautiful life one where God's will effortlessly flowed through him, resulting in the renewal all around him. The lame walked. The blind could see. The dead were alive again. The outcasts were brought in. The sinners found freedom. The hopeless found new life. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. His work was the renewal of the world, the restoration of relationship between God and humanity and humanity and humanity. 
Jesus brought the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus dies on the cross, carrying the burden of sin and broken relationship, Jesus speaks his last words. It is finished. With his death, he completed the work he'd come to do. He opened a way into the land of our inheritance. It was an immediate and decisive miracle. But the effects of that miracle, they're still being worked out today. Through Christ, we have free and open access to eternal life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and know the one who sent you. We have access to the Holy Spirit alive in us. We are free. We can cross into the land of our inheritance. The miracle is done, but the effects of the miracle, they're going to take strength and courage. And this is where a lot of us find ourselves with access to life to the full, but waiting. Waiting for healing, waiting for freedom from habitual sin, waiting on someone or something to come into our life, waiting on the Spirit to reveal the next step. And waiting is really hard. This is the here and the not yet, the space and the melody between liberation and renewal. But here's some good news. While the group was waiting ankle deep in the Jordan, waiting for the proof of the miracle God had already done, what were they holding? Yeah, the ark, God's presence. And for the past few weeks, as we've started to see a shift in what God is doing among us, though we don't know what it is and we're trying not to put our own restrictions on him, um, while we're waiting to see the effects of the miracle, I have felt a settling of God's presence among us. It's like a weighted blanket, like sometimes we're worshiping and it's like, I can't move, but I don't want to. Um, it's a gentle, but it's a definitive presence. And it reminds me of this story in Joshua, standing and waiting, but in the presence of God. And standing, unmoving in the presence of God is not doing nothing. I want to be careful not to say, this is what God's doing because I don't have a clue what God's doing. But what I have been sensing through my own experiences and through talking to many of you is that there is a deep healing work going on right now. And deep healing is not fast. And it's not even visible a lot of the time. Our present work may be to wait. Wait with expectation. Wait with foolish expectation. And to do that waiting in the presence of God. So that when we see the path open up before us, and it will, we can cross on the bottom of the river and walk through into full life, into the inher our inheritance guarantees us. Our steps leaving a wake of love and joy and patience and goodness behind us because the fruit of the spirits are our fruit, the fruits of our lives. Amen. And I realize that's a bit poetic and I know not everyone loves poetry. I wish you did, but I accept that you don't. Um, so what does walking in our inheritance actually look like? It's just me dreaming a little bit here now. Dream, come on. It looks like you entering into relationship with those who feel marginalized in our community. And that does include the poor and the houseless and those who may be on more visible margins, but it also includes the people in this room who for one reason or another feel like they don't quite belong. 
It means pursuing relationships that are not immediately easy due to similar life circumstances and finding that both parties are blessed because of it. It looks like laying hands on each other and praying for miraculous healings and rejoicing when the miracle happens. And it means suffering love through the waiting that will sometimes seem endless. It looks like quiet prayers hidden away to do the deep work we cannot see, and it looks like prophetic words that touch the deep places of need within someone else. It looks like raising our children in an atmosphere where their relationship with God is of the highest importance and where they can bring their questions and doubts to a community of mothers and fathers in the faith. And it looks like supporting and praying for the parents of this community whose children are not pursuing relationships with Jesus right now and holding faith that God will meet them where they're at. Our inheritance means sharing in God's sufferings so that we may share in his glory. And it means giving praise for the suffering he took on so that I don't have to. It looks like living out the gospel with your neighbors and coworkers and non-believers in your family. And it looks like some of them coming to faith. And it also looks like really awkward conversations with your non-believing siblings. (laughs) but somehow being at peace with it. Maybe I'm not always dreaming, but anyways. (laughs) It looks like reconciliation with people who should be in this room, but are not. And it looks like reconciliation and justice defined by by God in this town and this country. It looks like this community growing in diversity, but being united under Jesus. It looks like having the wisdom to know when to speak gospel truth into the life of another person, and it looks like the wisdom of knowing when to just offer love, and it looks like the courage to do both. It looks like crazy decisions measured by worldly standards, but that make perfect sense in God's kingdom, and it looks like radically ordinary hospitality. And it looks like the power and gifts of the Spirit pouring from our very bodies. And it looks like the confidence and humbleness to let Holy Spirit lead, even when it leads to a whole lot of waiting. Sometimes God works through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But more often, God seems to work through ordinary people doing ordinary things with extraordinary love. Living in the land of our inheritance is going to include both. But this current work seems to be the not-so-flashy variety. It does not seem exciting, and it can even appear stagnant from the outside, but it is not. Like he promised Joshua, God will not forsake us, but we need strength and courage. So one more thing from Joshua. So far today, we've read from Joshua chapter 1 and Joshua chapter 3. But there is another story wedged in between the two that's really easy to overlook. In fact, when I finally decided on this teaching text, I did my first full read-through of Joshua's one through three, and two pages of your Bible get stuck together, and I literally skipped Joshua two and didn't even notice. Joshua one is God's instructions to get ready. Joshua three is the crossing, and Joshua two tells the story of Rahab, Why is her story there, and why does it matter to us today? Because the story of Rahab is a story of crazy redemption. It is the story of a foreign female prostitute, someone of the least importance by almost any worldly standard, 
being the first non-Israelite being woven into the family of God and inheriting all that God promised them. It's the story of redemption so powerful that her entire family for generations benefits from her faith in a God she has only heard stories of up until this point. And when Matthew writes his gospel many generations later, her name is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab's story is included here because that's the kind of storyteller that God is. For those of us who have the faith to trust our whole lives to a God we have heard bigger stories about than we have actually experienced, who seek the audacity to trust in what he says and to risk looking foolish as we seek after a healing only he can bring, trusting that the miracle is done even if we will not see the results of it this side of eternity. Our names are written in the family of God, and we too have an inheritance. God's story includes redemption in the waiting, and I find that so hopeful. So what can we do to help each other keep faith, to be strong and courageous in the waiting? Well, at the beginning of last week's 24-hour prayer time, we put up a prayer wall called God at Work. And the intention is that we use that wall to post praise reports and prophetic words and pictures and ways that we are seeing and hearing God at work. Add to it. It's not just for when you're in the building. Anything that you've felt God speaking or you've experienced through the week, put it on a post note. I would love to see every inch of that wall covered in things. We are a wilderness generation and we're prone to wander and forget. And so we need to remind ourselves and each other of the small redemptions that are happening every day. So take time to read them and ask God to help you make connections. Increase your expectation. Step out in faith and go first. Trust that it is finished, that the miracle has happened. Look for redemption in the waiting. Pray. Pray for each other. Pray for our town. Keep his word on your lips and meditate it on it day and night. Find your place in the melody of renewal and find your place in the story he is writing. And take your next step in it. And give him glory in the waiting. As one final encouragement to you all, being in this room and worshiping alongside people who I know are hurting in very deep ways and who are choosing to worship anyway has had a very profound impact on me and my faith in the last while. And I'm not alone in that sentiment. Waiting is hard, but God is really good. And he has more for us. No matter where you are in your individual melody of renewal, there is more for you in your inheritance and all that Jesus has won for you and has guaranteed through his Holy Spirit. So I just want to close with um, the prayer that Paul has in Ephesians 1. It's, he's writing to the churches of Ephesus, and they are churches in a world a lot like ours. They are in a secular world. And... This is his encouragement to them. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all God's people. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in his heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May it be so, Lord. Amen. So I'll just, and if, if anyone would like prayer, there's a number of us who would love to pray with you. Find Kevin or Scott, Josh, or myself, or Susie, and yeah, let's, let's just keep going with what God has in store for us.